With our text this morning from Ephesians chapter 5, Paul begins a final set of practical exhortations in the epistle to the Ephesians. Uh, this matter has become controversial, to, to, to make an obvious understatement. This material is controversial in the last half century or so in the West because it speaks of things like male headship and the wife's submission to her husband. And thus, Paul has come to be seen by many moderns as an oppressor of women. George Bernard Shaw said that Paul is the eternal enemy of women. Apparently, George Bernard Shaw never been to Saudi Arabia. But so Paul is vilified. And exhibit A in the Paul is a misogynist museum is this text right here. But the passage is rarely read in its full context. And when it is, we shall see that there is nothing oppressive about it. Right, let us not forget that Jesus is the true liberator of humanity. Right, if you look at Jesus' ministry, you can see that he treated women, especially women, with a dignity and a respect unheard of in the ancient world. They were his friends. They were his disciples. Some of them financed his ministry. They were the first witnesses to the resurrection, even though they couldn't testify in court in the ancient world. And some of the more notorious of them embraced his mercy in a way which shocked the religious establishment. You'll have to remember that in the first century Greco-Roman world, women were chattel. They were the property of their husbands. They had absolutely no rights. And fidelity was not at all expected of the husband. Demosthenes said this, we have courtesans, prostitutes basically, we have courtesans for pleasure, concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation, and wives for having legitimate children. And the attitude of some Jews was no better. There's a famous Jewish morning prayer where the man thanks God that he is not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. So we begin here by asking ourselves, what has Paul already told us in the book of Ephesians? A, a simple question, but one modern readers of Ephesians chapter 5 who think Paul is such an awful human being never ask themselves. Well, he said this. He said there's one new man, and that one new man includes Jew and Gentile, and thus slave and free, male and female. You want truly liberating, radical equality? You have it right there. We all have, he says, the same God and Father, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same Spirit, the same hope. And no modern theory of rights can attain to that glorious bestowal of dignity upon women, or for that matter, men or children or servants. All ancient conceptions of the superior having greater worth or dignity are shattered in the body of Christ, which Paul has expounded to this point. 
Verse 21, it links this section to the previous one. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And what this submission means, what it looks like in the ordered community of the church, is spelled out in the following verses, which constitute our text. Now Paul tells us back in 1 Corinthians 11, man was created first, and the woman from the man. But then he goes on and says that man subsequently comes from the woman. So there is this beautiful mutuality. There is mutual dependence. But within this framework of mutual dependence, he says, of equal dignity, there is an ordering of roles. And so we're going to make three points. Three points. Wives, husbands, and the mystery. Wives, husbands, and the mystery. First then, wives. So this, this list here, beginning... In chapter 5, verse 22 of household instructions, first it's husbands and wives. Next week, Lord willing, we'll look at children and parents, servants and masters. This list of household instructions, Luther called a hostafel. It's a German word meaning a household code, a code of ethics. These types of codes, it's important to see, they existed throughout the ancient world. They existed outside the church. But what Paul does in his code here is uniquely Christian. He begins in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. There are three remarkable things to note here in contrast to the ancient household codes. First is this. The, the second party, the one considered by the culture to be inferior, is addressed first. That is done throughout the passage. Wives, then husbands. Thus the title of the sermon. Children, then parents. Slaves, then masters. This is a kind of subtle, subversive move by the apostle. Not only does this accent their equal dignity, it shows secondly that Paul is calling upon them as free moral agents to choose submission with respect to their husbands. And in a world where wives were property, this is extraordinary. It's remarkable. Thirdly, Paul is not invoking some social conservatism here. He does not say, look, the culture around you is male-dominated, so submit to your husband. He calls them to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. The submission is Christ-centered. It's grounded in biblical faith, not in current cultural norms. And submission, submission is humanizing. Submission to the Lord is humanizing and liberating. And thus wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Verse 23 gives the rationale for the command. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Again, we're so used to these texts and, and fumbling about with them, we, don't, we miss the revolutionary nature of what's said here. There are two reasons this is revolutionary. First, the wife is given a reason for the submission. 
This doesn't happen in other household codes. If you have a very young child and you ask them to do something and they want to know why, I'm sure you've told them, because I say so, that's why. Right? And, of, and of course, you know, that's fine. That's fine with young children. But it's exactly what the men of the ancient world would have expected to tell their wives. Right? These other household codes, you can go look at them. They don't, they don't, first of all, they don't address the wife first. Secondly, they don't address the wife as having this kind of dignity and freedom as a moral agent. And thirdly, they don't give the wife any rationale. Why would they? She has no rights. Paul breaks from that oppressive system and what he's doing. Right? Not only does he give him a reason, the reason comes from this new order brought in by the gospel of Christ. The husband has a role which images Christ's headship and the saviorhood of the church. So now, here, let's say what this headship first is not. Headship, headship doesn't mean the husband has some arbitrary, unlimited lordship or that he replaces Jesus for his wife. Any authority, any authority at all, be it a husband's, a parent's, an employer's, a church's, it stops when they command what God forbids or they forbid what God commands. Obedience to authority can never become disobedience to God. And so headship modeled after Christ should never be abusive, should never be threatening. But I want to make a, a slightly different point here than perhaps the one you think I'm going to make. You know, though the modern obsession with headship centers around the possibility of male dominance and the, you know, the quaint, outdated medieval notion of subordination and the like, there is another and frankly more prevalent, and I believe any pastor would tell you this, a more prevalent abuse of headship. Now, I've done a good deal of marriage counseling, and I can tell you that while abuse of authority happens, and it's heartbreaking, and it must be dealt with by the church, the vast majority of women are more distressed, far more distressed, by the spiritual passivity of their husbands. Headship does not mean nothing. Right, it doesn't mean passive, self-centered, non-communicative laziness. It doesn't mean checking out of the spiritual oversight of one's family and leaving everything into your wife's hands. That's not headship, and that's the main problem with headship. Yes, there are abusive husbands, and they must be dealt with. But there is a whole swath of passive, checked-out husbands. Now, we'll see what headship entails in a minute when we speak of husbands, but for now, we ought to note that while there are many hard cases, right, there are cases which place women in awful situations. They have to be handled on a case-by-case -case basis. Paul is not assuming here that the husband is perfect or that he's always a reflection of Christ's headship. But neither is he assuming some radically disoriented situation where there's abuse or gross passivity. He's assuming a reasonably well-ordered state, and then he calls us to this ideal. 
As such, wives should submit to their husbands in everything as the church is subject to Christ. Her submission here, note, it's not only Christ-centered, it's, a, it's, an, it's an image of the Holy Bride. It mirrors the church's subjection to Christ. And that subjection does no harm, no harm to the church's dignity. Right? In fact, our subjection to Christ is our very fulfillment. And here, I want to make an even broader point. We must note that submission, again, despite the modern obsession with it and disdain for it, submission is the sign of healthy, free men and women. It ultimately is rooted in the Holy Trinity. Where Jesus receives his very life, he's eternally begotten of the Father. And then when he becomes man, he submits to the Father's will. At agonizing cost, Jesus lives a complete life of absolute subjection. And he is the image of what it means to be a fully integrated human being. Men are in the church. And thus, they too must submit to Christ. All members of the church, male and female, are called to submit to the elders. The elders are in submission to one another and to the presbytery. All honorable citizens submit to the civil authorities. All employees submit to their employers. No one thinks that any of these forms of submission is oppressive, that it implies inferiority, that it attacks the dignity of human beings. So it is with the submission of wives. It's preposterous, the modern obsession with this text. The singling out of this one form of submission as some sort of gross prison imposed by Paul on all women everywhere. Submission within the context of equal dignity and equal worth and full unity is not unique to women. It's not, not unique to women. It's every place. Even feminists grant it. And it's not tacked onto the gospel here. Paul sees it lived out properly as a living image of the gospel. All right, the second point, husbands. And here we will see fleshed out just what headship entails. Husbands are addressed in in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Again, this is unheard of. The party which would be considered, considered superior in the ancient world is addressed as to their duties. Right? Of course, Paul doesn't view the husband as superior, but the culture would have. And they'd be surprised that Paul would actually charge the husband to uphold his obligations. Right? This is a world where the husband I don't have the letter with me, but it's a famous letter. This is a world where a Roman husband could write his wife and say, look, if you have a boy, throw it out. If you have a girl, keep it. I'll be back in a few months. That's the the kind of way he could write his pregnant wife. So the husband has a set of obligations. So there's reciprocity. There are mutual obligations. There is not mutual submission, that's true. But there are mutual obligations. But even that, beloved, mutual obligations doesn't quite get 
at what Paul is doing here. Right? The husband's obligations are far more demanding and extensive. And Paul spills far more ink on them than he does on the wife's duties. So any casual reader of the text would have to make this point. Just by looking at it, actually. You don't even have to read it. You could just look at it in an English Bible. And it would be clear that the apostle's overriding concern is not with unsubmissive wives, but with unchrist-like husbands. Right? This is his overriding passion in the text. Now, there are cases, of course, where the wife and her submission are the primary problem. I, uh, I counseled a couple where a flawed but decent husband's wife was regularly stealing money from him and then using it for her own somewhat shadowy ends. But I can tell you that those cases are rare. You know, even where, as is often the case, there's enough blame to go around. This text demands that the husband bear the brunt of the responsibility. It demands it. I've been in, in counseling situations where the husband and wife, this is unpleasant, um, begin arguing right in front of me. Quite viciously, actually, in a number of cases, and for a very, very long time, over an hour in two or three cases. And by the time this is over, your head is spinning, and you, certainly, you can't figure out which end is up. You can't figure out who's right, who's wrong, what happened, in what order. All you're thinking is, I wonder if IBM still needs engineering help. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and what I've invariably done, and, and by God's grace, this has been extremely helpful. I look at the husband, and I tell him, I say, I can't possibly, at least now, sort out all that has just transpired in front of me. But what I can tell you, Mr. Husband, is that God holds you responsible for this environment, for the atmosphere in this house which created what I just witnessed. That is not your wife's fault. And as the head of the house, you create the tone, and the tone here is not good. And this usually gets their attention. And it does so because it takes the headship that they're called to in this text seriously. This headship is grounded in Christ and His self-giving love for the church. Love your wives just as... Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Now, you, you would think after those words that we'd have a legion of men's rights groups, right, screaming about the unreasonable, unrealistic, oppressively demanding nature of this command to men. Right? That we'd have, you know, we'd have a century of people saying, Paul is... An inveterate hater of man. 
How could he go around telling husbands to love their wives just as Christ loved the church? I mean, you want to sniff out some inequality in this text? You have it right here. There's an inequality of responsibility. There's an inequality of burden. And there's an inequality of accountability. Wives are to submit, but the corollary from the husband's side is to love after the pattern of Calvary. I have no doubt that husbands fail in obedience to this text much more than their wives do in submission. And so in verse 26, he expands on Christ's self-giving love for his bride. He gave himself, (laughs) verse 26, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So Christ's self-giving, right? this is the opposite of passivity. This sort of self-giving is purposeful. He gives to beautify and to cleanse. The washing of water by the word probably alludes to baptism, which is given its power by the promises of God's word. The bride does not sanctify herself. She's made ready by the bridegroom. And likewise, husbands are to beautify their wives. They're to call them to live in accordance with their baptismal union with Christ, feeding them on the word of God. Right? Christ sanctifies, verse 27 says, the church in order to present to himself a radiant, spotless bride. And husbands are to be fitting their wives then, dressing them for the wedding feast of the Lamb. Later, Paul in the text, you can see this in verse 28, commands husbands love their wives as their own bodies. For he who loves his wife loves himself. You know, he's appealing here on one level to some basic healthy concern that normal, properly adjusted people have for their own well-being. No one, no one, he says in verse 29, hates his own flesh, but nourishes it, cherishes it. But of course, there's more going on here. You can get a glimpse of this at the end of verse 29. We do not hate, but rather we feed and care We nourish and cherish our own flesh just as the text says, again, just as Christ does the church. Christ's bride and Christ's body are one. So when he cherishes his bride, he's cherishing his own body. And that's the point Paul makes here. He who loves his wife loves himself, loves his own flesh. And that brings me to the final point, the mystery of marriage. So a man's bride, Paul says, is in a very real sense his body. And to make the point, he cites in verse 31, Genesis 2, which affirms that when a man is joined to his wife, the two become one flesh, one living new reality. Thus, to love your wife is to love yourself. And you may have noticed, if you're going to love yourself... You have to spend time with yourself. It's hard to love yourself when you're absent from yourself. And so husbands are called here to a kind of lifelong investment of time. This takes time, this text. Time with their wives, seeking their spiritual well-being. There's a story from the Midwest about a husband and a wife who were lying in bed one night and a tornado came and it ripped the roof off their house. 
It sucked them and the bed they were in out of the opening. And the wife was crying, but the husband soon realized that these were actually tears of joy. And so he asks her what's going on, and she says, it's the first time we've been out of the house together in 20 years. <laughs> uh, you have this text, husbands. Don't wait, don't wait for a tornado. Right. Finally, verse 32. Speaking at first glance about marriage, Paul says it's a great mystery, but then he goes on to say, but I'm really speaking about Christ and the church. This is really the crucial verse in this passage. The primary image here is not the image of man and wife, but rather the relationship in marriage is modeled after the union of Christ and his church. It's Christ's relationship to his church particularly his total self-giving saviorhood. It's that. And the church's loving response to that, which provides the blueprint for marriage. So Paul has, in this text, totally revolutionized the ancient husband-wife relationship. And he's done so without any of the unisex nonsense which characterizes our day. Do husbands have authority over their wives? Yes. It's the authority to die, to give sacrificially. It's headship used to purify and to nourish and cherish. Calvin says of this passage, you might note Calvin is not a liberal. He says the husband's authority is more the authority of a companion than it is a kingship. Do wives have to submit to their husbands? Yes. And it's done as having full standing in the one body of Christ with full equality of worth and dignity. It's done as an act of piety toward Christ, a living image of the bridal relationship which the church had, has with the head, which the incarnate son had with the father. So Paul has described the ideal in this text. We all fall far short of it. But we do have to continually come back because this is the standard and look to it that we might be renewed in God's grace to grow, to grow as husbands and wives who reflect the glory of Christ and his church. Amen.